1: Welcome to the science of success,
0: introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the science of success, the number one evidence based growth podcast on the internet, with more than 4 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we talk about one of the most important skills in the modern world the ability to be indistractable. Are you sick and tired of distraction? Do you feel constantly overwhelmed in a world of notifications, demands, messages, and more and more information flying at you? In this episode, we discuss exactly how you can battle back from distraction, control your attention and focus, and choose the life you want using the power of being indistractable with our guest, Nir Ayal, I'm going to tell you why you've been missing out on some incredibly cool stuff If you haven't signed up for our email list yet, all you have to do to sign up is to go to successpodcast.com and sign up right on the homepage on top of tons of subscriber only content, exclusive access and live Q and A's with previous guests, monthly giveaways and much more. I also created an epic free video course just for you. It's called How to Create Time for What Matters Most Even When You're Really Busy. Email subscribers have been raving about this guide. You can get all of that and much more by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage or by texting the word SMARTER to the number 44222 on your phone. If you like what I do on Science of Success, My email list is the number one way to engage with me and go deeper on what I discuss on the show, including free guides, actionable takeaways, exclusive content, and much, much more. Sign up for my email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're on the go, if you're on your phone right now, it's even easier. Just text the word SMARTER That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. I can't wait to show you all the exciting things you'll get when you sign up and join the email list. Do you know what you should be doing and yet you don't do it? In our previous episode, we dug into the science behind why this happens and how exactly you can overcome this massive obstacle. No one is ever actually stuck But the reason you feel stuck is because what you want, your goals, desires, changes you want in your life, et cetera, are bumping up against an emotional roadblock or subconscious limiting belief. It's like having one foot on the gas while the other slams down on the brakes. In our previous interview with Dr. Sasha Hines, we shared what you can do to finally overcome that fear and anxiety and transform your life. If you want to finally get unstuck, Listen to our previous episode. Now for our interview with Nier. Today we have another awesome guest back on the show, Nier Ayal. Nier is an expert in behavioral design, having worked in both advertising and video gaming, helping companies build and create more engaging products. He is the Wall Street Journal best-selling author of the book Hooked, How to Build Habit Forming Products, has been featured in Forbes, Psychology Today, and much more. He's an active angel investor and currently writes and helps companies create good habit and behaviors in their users on his blog, nearandfar.com. Near, welcome to the Science of Success.
1: Thanks, Matt. Great to be here.
0: Well, we're excited to have you back on the show. We loved our previous conversation and you've got a new book coming out that is really interesting and I think a critical topic in today's world, especially.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it's really great to be back. It's been a while, but the new book is occupied my brain for the past five years now. I've been working on this new book and I'm finally out of my writing cave and ready to tell others about what I learned.
0: Well, it's really funny. I was watching one of your speeches on YouTube doing a little bit of research about the book, and you opened with a blooper reel of people on their phones like walking into objects Mm -hmm. and stumbling into things. And embarrassingly, I literally, not even (laughs) a week ago, I was walking and I was reading something on my phone, and I literally like smashed my head into this like extended deck that didn't have like, there was nothing on the ground, but it was like elevated, and I just walked right into it. Yeah fortunately no no major damage or anything but it was like eerie to see that then in the video like a couple days later and just be like man we really (laughs) are i mean distraction i know it's hitting home for me
1: yeah the struggle is real i I thought you were going to tell me that you hit your head while you were watching the video that would have been the ultimate irony of ironies there
0: that would have been a supreme irony but no sadly but either way i think as you put it this whole distraction crisis is something that just every day almost seems to be getting worse and worse and worse and it's hard to kind of see through the fog
1: and see how do we get out of it. Yeah, well, that's that's a big part of what this book is about. I mean, it's you know, this topic has been covered from a lot of different angles, and it was frankly a topic I wanted an answer to and didn't find an answer I liked because every other book on this topic basically puts the blame squarely on technology. Right? Every other book I've read, I've, I've read like dozens and dozens of books on this topic because I, I don't like to write books that have already been written. So I only write books that I can't find that you know properly address the, the problem that I'm facing in my own life. And when I looked for a book to answer this question I had of why don't we do what we say we're going to do, fundamentally, why do we get distracted? Whether it's a technological distraction or any other sources of distraction, why don't we do what we say we're going to do and why do we do the things that we know we shouldn't do? And I, you know, after five years of researching this topic, originally I thought, I originally started thinking that these books must be right, that it is the technology that's the problem. But when I tried the solutions in these books, like a digital detox or a 30-day plan, they didn't work. (laughs) I tried them and they didn't. Not only that, the more I researched them, I found that the scientific literature actually doesn't really support many of these kind of folk psychology remedies to distraction, that we really have to dive deep to understand what distraction is all about.
0: I love that phrase, folk psychology because there's so much of that in today's world, and it's fascinating once you start getting into the science and, and really trying to figure out well, what actually works and how can you implement this and how can we really overcome these problems and challenges. But you touched on something a second ago, which I think is really important as well, which is this idea of I think in the book you call it acrasia, right? Mm-hmm. Which is which is this notion. Explain explain a little bit what acrasia is and why it's such an important concept
1: yeah, so I, I was surprised to find that you know distraction is an age-old concept that in fact socrates talks about acracia this tendency that we have to do things against our better interests. this was 2500 years ago literally people were complaining about how distracting the world is these days and so i just thought that was a really refreshing reminder that you know facebook didn't create distraction our iphones didn't create distraction this is a part of the human condition and that kind of led me to explore well, what is it about the human psyche that trips us up this way i mean why is it it's such a to me it's such a fascinating question If we know what to do, if there is no knowledge gap, why don't we follow through, right? We we all know if we wanna have a good looking body, we have to exercise and eat right. I mean, do you need to buy a bodybuilding book or a, a nutrition book to tell you that? We all know that chocolate cake is not as healthful as a healthy salad. We know that if you want a healthy relationship with your friends and loved ones, you have to be fully present with them. We know that if you wanna do really well at your job, You have to do the work, especially the hard work that other people don't want to do or aren't willing to do. You know, we don't need to buy self-help books that tell us all this stuff. We already know. So if that's the case, if there is no information gap, we actually do know what to do. Why don't we do what we say we're going to do? And so that was really the basic question of this book. Because what I have come to believe is that, you know, most people out there do already know what it is that they want to do, but they don't realize that it's, equally important to know how to not doing the things you don't want to do and so that's really what becoming indistractable is all about the term indistractable i made up the word and the nice thing about making up a word is that you can define it any way you like and so to become indistractable means you become the kind of person who strives to do what they say they're going to do it means you live with personal integrity you're as honest with others as you are to yourself and if you can do that if you can become indistractable i mean Isn't that a superpower? I mean, imagine what we could accomplish if we actually did everything that we said we're going to do.
0: That's a great framework and way of looking at it. It reminds me of something that some of my intellectual heroes, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, talk frequently about how their strategy is not necessarily to be smart, but it's to be less stupid and minimize a lot of the negative Decision making traits and ideas and so forth, so that they can, if you eliminate a lot of the bad possibilities, then suddenly your decision making quality improves, even without you doing super difficult, genius, incredible, you know, novel things. And it's the same approach, right? And that's kind of what you're talking about, which is there's so many things we know we don't want to be doing them. And yet, how do we create structures in our life to actually predictably
1: and systematically start to minimize those things that distract us and create negative behaviors? Absolutely. I mean, that is exactly spot on. I mean, it's really about consistency over intensity in so many aspects of our life. If you want to be more healthy, if you want to have better relationships, if you want to do better at your job, it's not about, oh, I read this book that gave me this amazing new breakthrough technique that's the flavor of the week and I'm going to implement it right now. It's about consistently performing the job or the activity at hand for the rest of your life, right? That's where excellence comes from. It's not about these these fly-by-night ideas. It's, It's about consistency over intensity. And what gets in the way of consistency is distraction. That's
0: another great framework. I've heard that concept and idea so many different times i've never heard it exactly put so succinctly the notion of consistency versus intensity but even coming back to the example which we've talked about in many episodes on the show cuz it's such a crystal clear one but you you brought it up as well the idea of weight loss or healthy lifestyles being healthy it's so you know it's not rocket science what you need to do and yet people don't do it and one of my kind of mentors in the fitness world told me something about any kind of meal plan or diet which is basically adherence trumps everything else. If you can't adhere right. to it, doesn't matter. And so right. at the bottom of the pyramid of most important things whether it's calories, macros, you know, meal timing, supplements whatever, the number one thing is adherence.
1: Right. Exactly. And should it be any different for this current dilemma that we face around distraction? That the same exact rules apply. And this is why I've been so dissatisfied with the other books that have come out in this category because they all tell you, you know, just put away the technology, go on a 30-day detox, do this 30-day plan, and it doesn't work. I tried them and they don't work. I got myself a feature phone that did nothing but send text messages, receive phone calls, you know, no apps, I got myself a word processor from eBay from the 1990s that had no internet connection, and I still got distracted, right? I got rid of all the technology, I thought that was the problem, and I still got distracted, why? Because there were these books behind me on this bookcase that I just wanted to you know read that one thing that might be helpful for work, or let me just clean up my desk for a second, or you know, I, I probably should throw out the trash. The trash needs to be taken out. And I constantly got distracted because I wasn't focusing on the core issue that was causing me to get distracted. I didn't understand the psychology of distraction. So just like you know, I used to be clinically obese at one point in my life. And I remember I would do these fad diets. I would go on these, you know, 30-day fad diets and then you know what happens on day 31, right? it all comes back because right? you eat with a vengeance. And so that's exactly what happens with our technologies these days and these distractions. If we don't learn how to manage the use of these products, and look, we, we need them for our livelihood, right? It's very easy to say, oh, get rid of your technology when you don't have a social media account, right? Some authors don't who write about this topic, which I think is really ironic. That wasn't helpful. I wanna know how I can live with these technologies and yet make sure that I can get the best of them without letting them get the best of me.
0: It's so fascinating that you tried to, and you actually did get rid of these things and you still got distracted. I find that really interesting, but I want to expound upon or explore something you touched on a minute ago that ties into all of this, which is this notion that, in today's world with this distraction crisis that we're facing, it really is a superpower if you can be indistractable because Mm -hmm. the things that are going to be rewarded are things that benefit from and are derived out of focus and deep work and creativity. That's where all the value is being created in today's economy. And if you're constantly distracted, you can never get to that place. That's right. That's
1: right. I mean, if you think about, okay, what is the job of a knowledge worker. What's our output? It's very clear if you work on a factory line, what your output is, right? You're making widgets, you're baking bread, you're whatever it might be, you can see your output on a production line. But for knowledge workers, what is our output? Our output is problem solving. Our job in one form or another, whether it's through customer service, whether it's through design, whatever it might be, our output in whatever format it takes is creating and coming up with novel solutions to hard problems. And it turns out that without doing focused work, that becomes very hard to do. So how do people do it? Well, they do it after work, right? They do emails and meetings all day long, and then at night is when they do the actual work of work, when they actually come up with novel ideas to hard problems. And that is, let's say, suboptimal, to say the least, because there's always a price to be paid. And the price to be paid comes out from the people we love. It comes out of time with our family. It comes out of time with friends. It's leading to this loneliness epidemic in this country that, you know, there there are fewer and fewer people can say that they have close relationships. And a big part of that is because we just don't spend the time that we need with people who make us feel good because we're just so busy these days with work that uh, spills over out of work, out of work hours, I should say. And so this affects so many different facets of our life. I mean, I think last but not least is our relationship with our kids. You know, so many parents I speak with complain about how their kids are so distracted these days with Fortnite and Facebook, and they're yelling at them to put these devices away as they're looking at email on their iPhones. We're hypocrites. And so, as parents, we need to become indistractable first and foremost. And I say this as a as a father myself of an eleven year old. We need to set the example for our children and help them become indistractable by first becoming indistractable ourselves.
0: So let's unpack this a little bit more. I want to dig into, as you called it a minute ago, this the psychology of distraction. Tell me
1: more Mm -hmm. about that. I want to start unpacking a little bit more. Sure. So let's define what we mean by distraction. So to understand what distraction is we have to understand what it is not what is the opposite of distraction the opposite of distraction is not focus the opposite of distraction is traction both words come from the same latin root trahare which means to pull and you'll notice that both words end in the same five letter word action traction and distraction both end in action reminding us that traction and distraction Are things that we do. They are actions we take, not things that happen to us. So, traction is any action you take that pulls you towards what you want, things that you do with intent. The opposite of traction is distraction. So, this is an important framework to get into our heads. We can think about it kind of like a horizontal line with two arrows pointing to the right and to the left. This is important for a few reasons. One, it frees us from this moral hierarchy that what some people do with their time is somehow morally inferior to what other people do with their time. It drives me nuts when people say, oh, those video games, what a waste of time. That's, that's a bad thing to do with your time. But you know, me watching that football game, that's fine. March Madness, that's perfectly fine. Me wasting time on you know, watching the sixth hour of, of Fox News or MSNBC, that's okay. But you playing video games or Candy Crush or social media, not okay. And it's ridiculous, because they're both pastimes. And there's nothing wrong with your pastimes, whatever it might be, as long as it is time that you plan to spend. So there's a quote in the book, I can't remember who said it, but it's a great quote, that the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. So anything that you plan to do with intent is traction. Anything that is not traction, that takes you off track from what you plan to do with intent, is distraction. Similarly, I mean in the same vein, many tasks that we think are worky, right? That kind of feel like we should be doing can also be distractions. So one thing that constantly got me before I learned how to overcome it was sitting down at my desk and saying, "Okay, it's time for me to do some focused work. It's time for me to, you know, write this chapter in my book or, you know, finish this presentation." but let me just for a minute, you know, scroll email for a minute, or let me just check that Slack channel or, you know, I'll Google something that feels worky, right? That's kind of a a good thing to do. It's something I have to do anyway, at some point, right? No, that is just as much of a distraction. If that is something that you did not plan to do with intent. So you've got traction on the right, you've got distraction on the left, on the horizontal axis. Now I want you to think about a line bisecting that horizontal axis vertically. Okay. So now you have, you've a line, like a big plus mark now in your head, and you've got almost like the the four points of a compass, north, east, south, and west. Now you've got the south and the north. We haven't talked about those two. We we already did traction and distraction, but what about the, the two other points, at the top and the bottom of the vertical line? At the bottom, I want you to place external triggers. External triggers are things that move you towards traction or distraction by giving you some piece of information in your outside environment. So this is where all the pings, dings, rings, and things that we have all around us every day can either move us towards acts of traction, things we want to do, or distraction. So if your phone buzzes and says, oh, it's time for that workout, or it's time for that meeting you planned, or it's time to read a book, or whatever it might be that you plan to do with intent, well, now it's moving you towards traction. But if you receive a buzz on your phone that gets you to do something you didn't plan to do, if you're working on a, on a hard assignment or your email is buzzing you, and now it's moving you towards distraction because that is something you didn't plan to do. And then finally, and most importantly, and this is where we really get into the weeds around the psychology of distraction, that the north part of this plus mark, right at the top, is internal triggers. Internal triggers are these things that prompt us to action, just like external triggers, but where the source of the internal trigger comes from within us. And so one of the mantras I want everyone to remember here is that by and large, distraction starts from within. These internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states. They are feelings, negative valence states that we feel that we don't want to experience. And if we really back up a bit to think about the first principles around, not only why do we get distracted, but why do we do anything? The answer is not what most people believe. Most people believe that the nature of motivation is some form of carrots and sticks, right? It's about pain and pleasure, Freud's pleasure principle. But it turns out that neurologically speaking, it ain't true. That neurologically speaking, it's not about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Turns out the way the brain gets us to do everything and anything is through the avoidance of discomfort. Everything we do is about the avoidance of discomfort. This is of course called the homeostatic response. And so whether it's a physiological sensation, if you feel cold, you put on a coat. If you feel hot, you take it off. If you're hungry, you feel hunger pangs, you eat. If you are stuffed and you ate too much, well you stop eating because that feels uncomfortable. So those are physiological states. The same is true for psychological states. When we're feeling lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we Google. When we're bored, we check Reddit or stock prices or sports scores or the news or YouTube. All of these things cater to these uncomfortable feelings. Even the pursuit of pleasure, right? Even wanting to feel something that feels good is itself psychologically destabilizing, right? Wanting, craving, the urge for a desire There's a reason we say love hurts. Neurologically speaking, it it does in fact hurt. Everything we do, even the pursuit of a pleasurable sensation is driven by the desire to escape discomfort. So that means if all our behavior is driven by a desire to escape discomfort, that means that time management is pain management. And so if we are really to get to the bottom of why we do or don't do the things we know we should or should not do, we have to start with these internal triggers. We have to master this discomfort that prompts us to either traction or distraction.
0: So many great points and things that I want to explore more. One of the most important things I think you said is this notion that distraction is not about the external triggers. It's the action that we take. It's not something that comes from the outside. It's something that comes from us.
1: Right. 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 But by and large, there are clearly external triggers can drive us to take internal. an action. Right. So people, you know, the knee jerk reaction is just to think about the external triggers. And, and even there, you know, most people will think about the pings and dings on their phone and their computer. We don't realize how many external triggers there are in the outside environment that have nothing to do with technology. In my research, I found that one of the most common sources of distraction in the workplace is other workers. <laughs> right. It's it's the scourge of the open floor plan office. Where someone can come by and say, hey, I just heard this office gossip. We have to talk about this. Come on, let's talk about this. When you're in the middle of a big project, that is just as much of a pernicious source of distraction as anything you might get on your phone. So there are ways to deal with that. One of the ways that you deal with it is you hack back these external triggers. So one thing that is unique about this book is inside the book, there is a piece of cardstock Actually, let me me back up. Can I tell a quick story here? Let me digress for just a minute. Absolutely. So this research about external triggers is is really interesting. And so there's an anecdote I tell in the book about the third leading cause of death in the United States. If I were to ask you, what's the third leading cause of death in the United States? I'll give you the first two. Number one is heart disease. Number two is cancer. The third leading cause of death, if it were a disease, it's not Alzheimer's, it's not accidents, it's not stroke. Third leading cause of death in the United States of America is prescription mistakes. People being given the wrong medication or the wrong dosage of medication by healthcare practitioners inside hospitals. 200,000 Americans are harmed every year by this completely preventable human error. Now, most hospitals in America just say, well, what are you gonna do? It's the price of doing business. Not much we can do about it. Until a group of nurses at UCSF decided to get down to the bottom of this and try to figure out what was going on. Why are so many people given the wrong medication by healthcare practitioners? And they discovered that the source was distraction. That nurse practitioners primarily, when they were dosing out medication on their medication rounds, were being interrupted by their colleagues somebody would come up to them and distract them, you, typically one of, their, one of their colleagues, a doctor or a fellow nurse. And so what was interesting about this study is that the people dosing out the medication and making these errors didn't realize that they were making the errors until it was too late, by and large. And that's exactly what happens to us as knowledge workers. We don't even realize how much better our performance could be if we could focus on one task at a time. Just like these nurses who were dosing out medication and didn't realize they were making an error until it was too late, we as well don't realize how much better our work could be if we just simply focused on a task for a substantial period of time. So what was the solution? What did these nurses do? They actually found a solution to this dilemma that reduced prescription mistakes by 88%. 88% reduction in prescription mistakes And their solution was not some multi-million dollar technology, their solution was plastic vests. Plastic vests that said dosing rounds in progress, and that signaled to their colleagues that these nurses were not to be bothered while they were dosing out medication, this reduced prescription mistakes by 88%, unbelievable. So I translate this lesson from these nurses into what we as knowledge workers can do every day inside these open floor plan offices. So back to what I started to talk about earlier, every copy of Indistractable inside the book comes with a cardstock sheet that you can pull out, fold into thirds, and place on your computer monitor. I call this a screen sign. And the screen sign says, in bold letters, I'm Indistractable, please come back later. Now, you don't leave this up all day long. You only leave this up at maybe 45 minutes at a time to signal to your colleagues that right now I'm doing focused work. And you say, oh, okay, well, I can wear headphones to do that. No, you can't, because people have no clue if you're watching YouTube videos or listening to ESPN podcasts or whatever. And so it's much better to s- send a very clear, explicit signal that you are not to be disturbed during this period of time. And, and you will find that your performance will improve markedly when you have that focused work time to not be interrupted, not just by the obvious interruptions of your technology, but also from the less obvious distractions like your workplace colleagues. Such
0: a great example. And that story about the pharmacist is amazing. And even the practical, bringing that all the way back to something people can implement right now today in their offices is such a great framework, such a great strategy.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it's worked, I use it in my home. I work from home and it's even effective even if you don't work in an open floor plan office. You know, when my kid comes into my office here, she also has to know that I can't be distracted. So even my child can be a distraction. (laughs) And so we use actually, my wife bought this $5 light up crown that she wears. It kind of looks a little ridiculous, but it works like a charm because, you know, before your words can come out of your mouth to interrupt her, you see the, what we call it, the concentration crown and you go, oh, okay, sorry. I know you're concentrating right now. I won't bother you. So it's a very, very effective technique.
0: That's awesome. And I want to come back and unpack a couple of the things about internal triggers as well and how we can manage our own psychological states and deal with the distraction and so forth that comes internally. But before we do that, I want to explore and finish unpacking external triggers. What are a few of the other strategies that we can use or implement to make it more difficult for us to get
1: distracted? Sure. So the four parts, just we we talked about the North, East, South and West kind of four parts of this model So just to recap those, the first step is to master internal triggers. The second step is to make time for traction. The third step is to hack back external triggers. And the fourth step is to prevent distraction with pacts. And so that's the strategy. I mean, the tactics here are less important. So whether it's a screen sign, whether it's this app or that app, those are all tactics. And the the book is full of tactics. So there's lots of tactics out there. But what's even more important is the strategy. Tactics are what we do. Strategy is why we do it. And so my contribution, I think, to this field is that now we can have a clear picture as to why we get distracted. You know, I would constantly get distracted day in and day out and not realize why or do anything about it, right? What's that definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results? You know, like an idiot, I would constantly get distracted day after day and not do anything about it. And that's where I think this model is helpful is to finally be able to picture, oh, okay, was it an internal trigger that I need to deal with and find a better way to cope with that discomfort? Was it that I didn't make time for traction? Was it that I should have hacked back that external trigger that distracted me? Or can I use a pre-commitment or a pact to prevent distraction? Those are the big four strategies. By the way, need to be done in order. A lot, what I've discovered in my research is that if you do these out of order, like a lot of people have heard about pre-commitments, making some kind of bet with a friend to make sure they do what they say they're going to do. These type of tools have been around for a while. But in fact, they can backfire if you don't first take care of the other steps. So it's very important you do these in order.
0: In that case, let's back up and start, come back to internal triggers and talk a little bit more about how do we deal with those. You know, I love what you said earlier about this idea that in psychology, everything is fundamentally about the avoidance of discomfort and, and the homeostatic response. And I wanted to explore a little bit more, even this notion you shared that time management is pain management. Tell me a little bit more about all those and how that comes back to helping cope and deal with internal triggers since that's the first of the four core strategies.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And this is the hardest one to deal with. I'll be honest, because the other ones are, are more tactical. This one requires us to face the icky, sticky, uncomfortable truth that we use these devices to escape ourselves. And I think managing these internal triggers starts with dispelling this notion that somehow if we're not happy, if we're not satisfied, then something's wrong with us. And nothing could be further from the truth. What I want folks to realize is that the self-help and personal development industry has sold us this lie because it makes them a lot of money, that if we're not happy, we're not normal. And that is just not true, that our species evolved to be perpetually perturbed. That's how we advance, right? We need dissatisfaction. If there was ever a tribe of homo sapiens who was happy hunky-dory and satisfied with life and didn't want more and didn't feel these internal triggers to spur them to want more, if that tribe ever existed, our predecessors probably killed them and ate them (laughs) because they wouldn't have survived. So the first step is to realize that feeling bad isn't bad. It's normal. That is the baseline human condition, is wanting, craving, desiring more. Now, we can either use that for good, right we can use these internal triggers these uncomfortable emotional states to help us do more to be better to help us you know discover life-saving medicine to help us overturn despots to reach for the stars all of these things come from a desire to want more so we need to harness that power to do one of two things we can use that power to either change our circumstances and change the source of the internal trigger or where we can't change the source of that discomfort, we need to learn methods to cope with that discomfort. So I think over the past few years, you know, I I talk about in the book very very briefly. It's like a one sentence. I talk about how I will not be talking about meditation or mindfulness for the rest of this book, <laughs> not because these techniques don't work, but I think they've gotten too much airtime. That it's almost like in a way behavioral economics versus conventional economics that most of human behavior is driven still by conventional economics. Incentives work, and those incentives, you know, fall under conventional economics. And of course, behavioral economics explains some of the exceptions to standard, you know, incentivized behavior. And the same goes when it comes to mindfulness and meditation. You know, those techniques are fantastic when we can't change the source of the discomfort. But let me tell you, we don't always want to meditate our problems away. Meditation is itself a form of psychological escape, and we need that to some degree. There's nothing wrong with it. But we shouldn't go straight to that. We should start by first asking ourselves, can we change the source of the discomfort itself? Can we fix the problem? And only when we can't fix the problem and we will always have these uncomfortable emotional states. That's when we need to learn techniques to cope with that discomfort. So we either fix the source of the discomfort, and I talk about in the book, in the second half of the book, I talk about how you know one of the major sources of discomfort in people's lives is terrible workplace culture. So many people work in work environments which perpetuate these internal triggers, feelings of anxiety, depression, stress, fatigue, are perpetuated by workplace cultures that are toxic. And so those are the type of workplace environments that We have to fix that culture because what do people do when they experience these uncomfortable emotional states? Well, they send even more emails. They call even more pointless meetings. They do behaviors that not only distract themselves, they distract their colleagues as well. So there's a big chunk of the book about how to build an indistractable workplace. That's where we fix the source of the discomfort. But then when we can't fix the source of the discomfort, I give three techniques for coping. With these internal triggers when we can't necessarily fix the source of the discomfort. And these three techniques are all about reimagining these internal triggers. So we can either reimagine the trigger, we can reimagine the task, or we can reimagine our temperament. And so those are the three big categories for what we can do when we have an internal trigger that we can't necessarily fix the source of. So, for example, I'll just give you one technique I use almost every single day. This technique comes out of acceptance and commitment therapy. By the way, nothing in the, you know, I hate these self-help books that are, you know, hey, I tried this technique and it worked great for me, therefore it'll work for everybody. No, 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 that's not what my book is about at all. Everything in my book is peer-reviewed studies that have appeared in academic journals. Most of it is old research, but it's applied to this new domain. And so, you know, for example, this technique that comes from acceptance and commitment therapy of doing what's called surfing the urge. So th- here's how this technique works. So when I sit down at my desk and I need to work on a big project, I need to write, I need to do something that I'm likely to get distracted while doing, when I find myself potentially getting distracted, so let's say something that used to get me all the time, now I know how to deal with it, is this urge while I'm writing, You know, writing is really hard work for me, while I'm writing, I'll, I'll just say to myself, let me just check that quick email, I wonder if something came in, or let me just Google something, I need to do a bit of research here for a minute. But that's, of course, distraction, because that's not what I intended to do with my time. So... What I used to do was to bully myself. I would have this negative self-talk of, you see, you're so easily distracted. You have such a short attention span. You see, it's something wrong with you. And that's exactly the wrong thing. What we really wanna do is to explore that sensation with curiosity instead of contempt. Step one is we simply write down that sensation. And I'll give you a link to a distraction tracker that is in the book as well, where all we have to do is simply note that sensation. Simply putting it on paper. Feeling bored. Okay. It sounds silly. It sounds simple, incredibly effective. That's the first step. Then the second step is to explore that sensation with curiosity rather than contempt. Most people, their self talk is horrendous. I know it was for me. You know, if, if I talk to my friends the way I talk to myself, they wouldn't be friends with me anymore. Right. We are oftentimes our, our worst critics. And so what I've done now is to cultivate self compassion, is to talk to myself the way I would talk to a good friend. And in that process of self-compassion, what I'm doing is self-talk, you know, something like this, for example. Oh, there I go reaching for my cell phone. I'm feeling fatigued, I'm feeling uncertain, I'm feeling fearful that nobody's gonna like what I'm writing, and I get curious about that sensation. And then what you're gonna do is for simply 10 minutes, this is called the 10-minute rule, again, this comes from acceptance and commitment therapy, is for 10 minutes, explore that sensation. And for those 10 minutes, you have two choices. You can either get back to the task at hand or just sit with that feeling. And once that timer is up, and you can use your iPhone even to set a timer very quickly, just as Siri set a timer for you for 10 minutes, once that timer goes off, you can give in to that distraction. And 99% of the time, by the time that 10 minutes timer goes off, you will have forgotten that sensation. The sensation will have crested and passed away, And you won't feel that internal trigger anymore, and you'll be on to doing the work you really wanted to do. So that's just one of many, many, many techniques in the book that I use every single day.
0: Awesome strategies and very, very detailed. You know, self-compassion is so important and something that's tremendously underrated. People think it's soft. People think it's woo-woo. You know, it doesn't get talked about enough, and we've done a couple episodes on it that are awesome that we'll throw to the show notes, but I think it's so important to just underscore that, that self-compassion is really a cornerstone of being a great achiever, of, of achieving your goals, of doing what you want to do. And a of that that you talk about as well in the book is this notion that being self compassionate. part of that too is when you fail, when you get distracted, it's okay. And getting back on the wagon is more important than just saying, oh, I got distracted and just giving up and blowing up the whole project.
1: Right, absolutely. absolutely. And And what we find is that most people fall into two categories. I call them the blamers or the shamers. The blamers say, "Oh, you see, it's the technology that's doing it to me. the The big, bad technology companies are are making me get distracted. Those are the blamers. The shamers go into this self-talk death spiral of, you see, there's something wrong with me. I knew I probably have some kind of obsessive compulsive disorder, or I, I have a short attention span or an addictive personality. And, and look, you know, some people really do have a pathology. There are people out there that do have obsessive compulsive disorder or an addiction or whatever the case might be. Very, very small percentage. We're talking single digit percentages here. So the vast majority of people listening to me right now do not have such disorders. And yet we psych ourselves up. We tell ourselves that somehow we are dysfunctional in some way, and the answer is neither of those things. The right answer is not to be a blamer. It's not to be a shamer. It's to realize that these are behaviors, and our behaviors can change if we know how to deal with these internal triggers appropriately in a helpful manner. I want to come back
0: to something that I've also heard you talk about that I think was really important from a thematic standpoint around the idea of distraction, and that's this notion that Coming back all the way to what we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation, the opposite of distraction is action. And you have to have proactively, which is one of the, I guess, the second pillar now that we're getting into making time for traction. You have to proactively figure out what do you actually want to achieve? Because if you're getting distracted from nothing, then are you really being distracted at all?
1: That's exactly right. So the the way I phrase it as a title of one of the chapters is you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So we have no right to complain that something distracted us. If you can't show me on your calendar what it was you wanted to do with your time, right? And I used to do this all the time. I used to have a big, wide open calendar and I'd you know put in a big block and I'd say work. <laughs> For, okay, today I work. Well, that's, that's ridiculous. And I used to buy into this myth as I think many people still do. I call it the myth of the to-do list. That productivity experts tell us if you just put things on a to-do list, magically they'll get done somehow. And I don't know how that works. I don't know where the magic to-do fairy exists to get your stuff done. That's ridiculous because your to-dos are your outputs. That has nothing to do with your inputs. So if I were to ask a baker to bake me 100 loaves of bread, he would say, great, okay, where are the inputs, right? Where's the flour? Where's the yeast? Where's the factory? I need the employees, all this stuff to make the 100 loaves of bread. But we knowledge workers, we don't ask that question. We just take orders from our boss, from our family, from whoever needs us to do stuff in our day, and we put it on a long to-do list, and then most days, you know, half the tasks get shipped over to the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and they never get done. Because you have to put those tasks on your calendar, or they'll never get done. And so this is part of this process that I talk about called syncing up with stakeholders, where we need to have this regular check-in with the various stakeholders in our life, starting with ourselves right do you have time on your calendar to live up to your values i say you have to turn your values into time if i look at your calendar of your week ahead not the week before but the week ahead can i see how you will live up to your values and i'm not telling you what your values should be by the way if health is a value for you if taking care of your physical body is is important to you then is that time on your calendar? If taking care of your spiritual health is important to you, is that time on your calendar? Is taking care of your intellectual growth, is that time on your calendar? So that has to do with the domain of you. The second domain above that is your relationships. You know, Are you making time for the important people in your life? Not just, okay, I'll see them when I see them, but do you have time on your calendars on a regular basis to make sure that you connect with people you love, your family, your friends, other loved ones, your community members? is that on your calendar. Then finally when it comes to the workplace, we also have to make time for the important tasks in our day-to-day jobs. You know, every knowledge worker I interviewed for this book, when I asked them, you know, is focused work even important to you? Like should should I even write this book? Every one of them said absolutely. I have to think. I have to, you know, in order to solve problems, come up with novel solutions to difficult problems, I need time to think. But so few of us actually have that time on our calendars. So we have to turn our values into time and actually put that time on our calendar. Now, there's a free tool. I'll give you a link in the show notes. I, you, know, nobody, you don't have to sign up. You don't even have to give me your email. None of that stuff. It's totally free. But I just kept getting asked this question of, where do I make a weekly template? How do I even do that? And so I built this tool that's completely free online. I'll give you it in the show notes where you can make what your ideal weekly template should look like so that finally you will know the difference between what is traction, things that are on your calendar, things that you're doing with intent, and anything that you're doing that's not on that calendar is distraction. Now, by the way, I get this question a lot around, well, isn't some distraction good for you? No, not according to this definition, but what I think some people mean is diversion. Diversion can actually be good for you. So for example, if you want to divert your attention and let your brain just wander and relax or become creative, great. Put time on your calendar to watch Netflix. Put time on your calendar to check Facebook. Put time on your calendar to pray or meditate or just take a walk. Great. Do those things if they're consistent with your values, but do them on your schedule. In my schedule, every evening, I have time to check social media. I love social media. There's nothing wrong with it. But I use it on my schedule, not on the App Maker schedule.
0: Such a great point. And I just made a note to myself to start thinking about how I can take everything that's on my to-do list and frame it into discrete blocks on my calendar when I want to be executing those things. So it's absolutely, yeah. absolutely awesome strategy. It
1: does take a little bit investment of time. I'll, I'll warn you, it took me the first time I did it, maybe 30 minutes. But then after that, it's only 15 minutes every week just to review it and make sure that you're making small adjustments. But it's a few things have changed my life and made me more productive, much more happy in my day to day life closer to my family, my friends than this simple act of making time for, for the things that are important to me on my calendar down to the minute.
0: And this is actually a lesson I learned from a good buddy of mine, Sebastian Marshall, who's a previous guest on the show as well. But he talks about there's, as you start to measure and do this, there's a value in learning how much you can accomplish in, let's say, a 30 minute block. And you get better and better at estimating, okay, if I'm going to, I need to do X, well, how much time should I really allocate to that? And you start to get a lot more intuitive about understanding okay, that's really going to be a two and a half hour task, or that's really going to be a 15 minute task or whatever it might be. And there's real value in understanding how productive you can be in a given time period.
1: Right, right. But it only comes from this cycle of looking back at the week that passed, figuring out, hey, did I go off track? Did it, was it enough time? Was it too much or too little time? And then adjusting your calendar of the next week, the template the next week, based on what you learned the week before.
0: Exactly. And if you don't measure it and you don't put it on your calendar, then it's just going into a black hole and you have no idea what's happening.
1: That's right. That's exactly right.
0: So we've talked about so many great ideas, concepts, strategies, tactics for listeners who want to concretely implement one thing coming out of this episode. What would be the first action step that you would give them to start becoming indistractable?
1: Well, I, I really think it's about this strategy more than any one specific tactic. It's about knowing the next time you get distracted, You know, becoming indistractable, it doesn't mean you never get distracted. It means you know what to do the next time you get distracted. So you don't keep getting distracted by the same thing again and again every day. You can make sure that you can do what you really want to do as opposed to doing what other people want you to do with your time. because. You know, look, the fact is, if you don't plan your day, if you don't know these techniques, there's no doubt that somebody's going to eat up your day, right? Whether it's the tech companies with their distractions, or your the demands of your spouse or your kids or your boss, somebody is going to eat up your time unless you know what you want to do with it to make sure you don't get distracted. And so the biggest takeaway are these four key pillars, right? Master your internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back external triggers, and prevent distraction with PACs. I think a macro theme here that I think is very important to realize is I really want to counteract this myth that I think is perpetuated by some folks in this space that, you know, technology is controlling your brain. Because the more I researched this idea, one, the the research just doesn't bear this out, that addiction, you know, this idea of, of tech addiction is real for some people, right? People can get addicted to any analgesic is potentially addictive. But it's not the vast majority of us. For the vast majority of us, it's not addiction. It's maybe overuse. And when we call it what it is, which is at, at times overuse, we can begin to take control over it as opposed to just sloughing off responsibility. The worst thing you can do is to say to yourself, Well, there's nothing I can do because the algorithms are, you know, hijacking my brain and they're addictive. And they're, you know, the, what we're teaching people is essentially learned helplessness. Which is actually, ironically, giving these companies more power and more control than they deserve. So the first step is to realize that we do have power, we do have control, we do have agency. If we know how to put distraction in its place, we all can become indistractable.
0: And Nir, where can people find you, your work, and the book online?
1: Absolutely, so my blog is at nearandfar.com, near and is spelt like my first name, N-I-R, so nearandfar.com, and information about the book, Indistractable, how to control your attention and choose your life. The book is sold you know, anywhere books are sold, and if you do get the book, even if you don't get the book, if you go to indistractable.com, there are all types of resources there, there's an 80-page workbook, there's that distraction tracker I mentioned earlier, there's the schedule maker, all of these tools, many of them free, whether you buy the book or not, All of that is at indistractable.com. That's I-N, the word distract, A-B-L-E, indistractable.com.
0: Well, Nir, thank you so much for coming back to the show, sharing all this wisdom, insights, ideas, incredible conversations, so many lessons. Thank you so much for joining us once again on The Science of Success.
1: My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me back.
0: Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email.